You know, <laughs> I will say, it is funny that when we kind of made a loose idea of what the rest of the year was going to be, <laughs> I didn't expect our first trilogy to be the thing. Just immediately calling audibles. <laughs> Just immediately going, oh, the first trilogy we plan to do, we can't do. Yeah. So I, we're going to have to find something else. What if what if that's an omen for how the rest of our year's I've, schedule goes? I really hope not, but, <laughs> I, but we'll see. I mean, hey, in this case, it's working out. Um, rather than continuing to speak cryptically, people, yes. we... Uh, we are, in fact, not talking about Wong Kar Wai and Tony Leung's uh, love trilogy this week, uh, as we were not able to find those in any easily accessible or inexpensive uh, place. Yeah, so the three, it's Days of Being Wild, In the Mood for Love, and 2046. Mm-hmm. And In the Mood for Love is the only readily available one, which it's now on HBO Max. <laughs> but the other two are nowhere. I think what you can only find them through Criterion. Yeah, so there's like there's a, a seven film collection called the Films of Wong Kar Wai, which is like the only way. You can, yeah, and, and that's it's like, like 150, 125. <laughs> and we're just I'm, we're just not at the point of pumping that much money into an episode yet. Well, no, we're honestly, too, it, it's but, more the fact that like we just there was not enough time oh, to yeah. like get that. Yeah, and just be like, well, I hope it comes in by Tuesday or something <laughs> like that. So it was like, let's do something else, and with that something else. Hello, everybody. I'm Logan Sowash. And I'm Andy Carr. And this is Odd Trilogies with Logan and Andy. And on Odd Trilogies, we take a trio of films, whether tied by number, cast and crew, or thematic elements, and we talk about each film and surrounding the good, the bad, and the weird surrounding them. And today on the show, we are not doing Wong Kar-Wai's Love Trilogy, (laughs) obviously. Instead, we are doing another film trilogy that actually still has a tie to the big release of this weekend, Shang-Chi and the Legend yeah, of the Ten Rings. I'll be at loose, but it's, yes. Yeah, instead of it being Tony Lung being the tie for the trilogy, we have Michelle Yeoh. Even though it's a loose tie, it's still a tie regardless, <laughs> and we'll bit, take it. bit part in one of the three movies, but we'll yes. go with it. And those three films are, it was suggested by one of you, and we've been wanting to do it for a while, so we thought, why the hell not do it for this weekend, since yeah. we can't do what we wanted to do initially? Why not have a fun, swashbuckling time with the Mummy Trilogy? We are yeah. doing Stephen Summers's, or mainly Stephen Summers's, <laughs> swashbuckling block. Yeah, two thirds. We're doing the blockbuster trilogy that was 1999's The Mummy, 2001's The Mummy Returns, and 2008's The Mummy: The Tomb of the Dragon Emperor. And this is about as cut and dry of a trilogy as you can kind of pick. Yeah. Where it's 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 fascinating to a degree because I think that one of the most fascinating parts about this trilogy is this is I think at this point the fourth iteration of The Mummy, where the first iteration is 32's The Mummy with Boris Karloff, Mm -hmm. and then Universal remade it eight years later, made four more sequels, and then in the 50s, 53 or something. Yeah, there's the Hammer films. Yeah, right. And then there's these. So the biggest gap is between the Hammer versions and this one. about 45 years. Yeah. And what basically happens is director, writer-director Stephen Summers wanted to make a romance action adventure series based off of the classic Universal monster. Yeah, well, the the mummy as a as a pro- <clears throat> property was kind of the the object of Universal's desire for the entirety of the '90s. It was kind of mm-hmm. uh, it was an early example of kind of. I mean, we're still living through it now, twenty, thirty years later, but. Um, you know the the kind of craving by studios to remake classic properties or yeah. beloved properties, and they were they wanted to make 
uh, a mum another mummy remake after the three prior and their sequels and it is um, not the last mummy remake <laughs> it's not the last mummy remake sadly <laughs> enough um but uh it was actually i mean it was imagined as kind of the original was a horror film um originally and i mean mm-hmm. there were a number of big names attached to it george a romero was originally picked really to to try of and course. do this as a horror that would be kind of great <sighs> um and then I, he stepped away i think for scheduling reasons and i mm-hmm. think i mean the, joe dante was at one point attached another good choice tom cruise was set to star at one point i knew that even before it was a adventure blockbuster wasn't leo i think leo at one point wasn't he interested well, i think all of the big 90s guys yeah. matt leo matt damon leo ben affleck they were all considered before brendan was yeah um but uh but yeah it, it changed hands a number of times but was they were trying to get it done as a horror movie and then i guess by the time stephen summers got to it he said that the executives were convinced that it needed to be an adventure blockbuster rather than a horror. So he was like, hey, that, that's the movie I want to make. Well, so. at that time, too, I mean, horror at that point is mainly like at the beginning of this decade of the 90s, it is The Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. Like that's like that it's is what psychological horror Psychological thriller. Yeah, it's yeah, back yeah. to the psychological thriller, Seven, thriller era. Yeah. And then in the middle of the 90s, late 90s, we get Scream. Just yeah. kind of redoing everything. Right, it's like and, a callback. Yeah, and those are like, that's popular horror at the time. Yeah, doing kind and, of a genuine cut and dry, just classic monster horror is not yeah. really something you're seeing much. So, Which is probably why they ended up moving away from the idea and why they had so much trouble getting that idea off the ground. And, I mean, we got to talk about also the two biggest, I guess, elephants in the room when it comes to this. Two other Universal monsters were turned into films that same decade, which is Bram Stoker's Dracula by Francis Ford Coppola and Kenneth Branagh's Frankenstein. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I forgot about Frankenstein. Where De Niro was Frankenstein and Helen Botham Carter was (laughs) Bride of Frankenstein. Yeah. It is that era where it's like those films, I think, I don't know if both do critically well, but I don't. They've gotten more love, especially Dracula's gotten more love more as love time has time. gone off. Yeah, but I'm not with sure they were box office darlings either. No, because they're like they are. They're kind of art films. Yeah, they're like gothic romance. Yeah, they're, they're like they're, more like the original novels than the Universal monster yeah, films. They're not exactly what the the '90s movie going public was mm-hmm. <laughs> clamoring for. There was also like I think it's late '80s, maybe early '90s, the Jack Nicholson Wolfman film. Did that actually get made? That did get made. <laughs> I think it was called Wolf or something like that. I had no idea that existed. Um, and yeah, it's it's in that weird time, like in the eighties into the nineties, it's like they want to do stuff with the Universal Monsters, but they seem to either give it the full auteur treatment and it doesn't really get the money that they want to. Right. Or it doesn't really I mean, it kind of gets just like lost in the shuffle. Yeah. And so like it makes sense that when you when Steven Summers gets brought on board. At this point, the man has done, oh, gosh, I, uh, I, I looked it up. He, One did, of the, he did Catch Me If You Can. He, did he do Catch Me If You Can? Yeah. Uh, not the, uh, not the. Yeah, not the Spielberg Not the film. Leonardo DiCaprio one, but the yeah. uh, less known. Um, <laughs> Catch me if you can. Yes. He did do, I think it was the, one of the most fascinating films on his di- directorial uh, list was the Elisha Wood and Courtney B. Vance Huck Finn film. Oh, yeah. Which is wild to think that at some point that was a thing. But also, I kind of want to see it now because I like both of them. <laughs> right, right, yeah. 
also did a Jungle Book adaptation. Yes, that's what I was thinking of. He does the Lena Headey, Carrie Elwes, like, live-action Jungle Book film. Yeah. Which I think is pretty popular at the time it comes out. It's not a critical darling, but it does fairly well. And and then he does, I think, Deep Rising, which looks awesome. I have not seen it. (laughs) I haven't seen it either. But it looks wild, just like underwater parasitic monster, like, monster kind of stuff. And it makes sense to pick him because I think he does well with bigger budgets. He knows what the studio wants, and he delivers because 99's The Mummy still slaps. It's honestly still the best film out of the trilogy. Oh, yeah. I think it it's cut and dried to me an 8 out of 10 blockbuster. Like, mm-hmm. this is what a blockbuster should be through and through where Summers does a great job of establishing in this film, like, you can do so many of these movies if you want. But that doesn't matter because the first movie should be great on its own. Yeah. And if you want to do more, you can. Because this film doesn't feel like it's trying to set up a sequel. But it leaves enough wiggle room that you could. Right. Which right. is how we get returns out of this. And yeah. it's just a fun, tight two hours, too. Mm-hmm. Like, it's a little bit over two hours. But by the time the credits hit, it's not even like an hour 55, I think. It's like right. it just ends. The, the film knows when to end. <laughs> the adventure's over, it ends. And it's like, oh, shit. Yeah. Well, that well, was fun. It's, uh, you know, it's kind of a fun, I don't know, t- time capsule in a way, just because it feels like a little more, uh, for kind of a swashbuckling adventure movie that's mostly relatively family-friendly, clear to PG-13 yeah. rating, but, uh-huh. you know, it, it has some kind of spooky or horror elements that are kind of gruesome horror that stuff. you just can't yeah. really imagine being in a, a movie this... I guess, silly and family-friendly today. So it, yeah. it's an interesting dichotomy of... I mean, clearly they're trying to bring over just a taste of the horror origins of the property mm-hmm. while also making it a big, bombastic adventure. And that's you know that's kind of a nice thing to see that you don't see a lot of these days. Yeah, it's, it's like a great mix of horror, action, adventure, comedy, romance. You get all the... The main genres mm-hmm. getting well used in a blockbuster that it's kind a four of four quadrants film. I mean, really, sure. it does. It's a film that goes does a home history. Run. You get history. Oh, you get history. It doesn't feel it doesn't feel extremely dated in how it treats the era, even though it is like twenties. Yeah, Egypt. yeah. Aside like from it, like some, you know, obviously casting white people in in ancient mm-hmm. Egyptian roles. You know, yeah. Aside from that, which is just you know part of the time but you um, know what it feels there's mo- a lot of it, it feels better here than it does in the tom cruise one. oh yeah for sure <laughs> but uh it's you know there actually is a lot of love for kind of the history and the mythology of the of the setting shown here and i mean yes you know they, they brought on like actual egyptologists to kind of determine how ancient egyptian would have been spoken because we yeah, don't actually really cool. have any mm-hmm. real concrete understanding of how that was and so they you know there's a lot of spoken egyptian in this movie ancient egyptian and it's not something you will have ever heard before because they kind of made it up with historical reference for this movie and they did a good job like yeah. it's just across the board it just you feel like this film is going to age poorly and it is aged in places but it's still just stylistically its own thing where it's like it doesn't bother me that like yeah. these effects are 22 years old this year 
Yeah, the yeah. I mean, there's there's obvious things you could kind of jab at, like the you know the mummy himself in a lot of places looks the very bugs. rubbery. The bugs are probably the big thing. The, the the scarabs, yeah. Yeah, the scarabs um, under the skin. That's like I think I would say my least favorite effect oh. is the. Is, the, is like the little bulbs to just kind of like <laughs> yeah. run around someone's skin. Yeah, they just kind of look like filters over the skin. Yeah. 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 Um, the For me, it would probably be the, the kind of bits in both of the first movies where they sort of try and merge the gap between full corpse mummy and uh, Arnold Vosloo, the yes. actor who plays Imhotep. Who kills um, it. He's, yeah, he's great. But those, those stages in the mummies kind of... Uh, Res- resuscitation where he's he's clearly all cgi but he's supposed to look more human those yeah. are the moments where i'm like oh if only they'd made these movies a couple years later and they probably could have pulled that off yeah um but really you know it's hard to give these movies too much crap for their visual effects because they're largely very i mean yeah. they're groundbreaking uh, ilm put in a lot of oh my God. work and created so some new techniques to to make some of this happen and pull it off i mean I, it's again it's one of the perfect it's one of a great modern example of the perfect blend between practical and visual at mm. a very early age of cg because they used a lot of practical effects yeah especially in like the beginning where it comes to like ancient egypt a lot of that's practical but they mix it well with like the cg elements yeah. uh, it's just so much fun I it forgot how fun. much fun it is. And I think, I mean, a huge part of that, I think, is uh, Brendan Fraser in the lead, to be yes. honest. Cause, which, which is funny, just thinking that he was, you know, on nobody's list for the role but at you, the time. Did you find out? I read this, and I don't know if you've read it too. Did you see which film apparently got him the role? <laughs> George, George of the, the Jungle. George of the Jungle. Yeah. It makes perfect sense. Yeah. Because oh, apparently yeah. the explanation was they were looking for someone to have an Errol Flynn vibe. Right. Somebody who could do the swashbuckling but wouldn't take it too seriously. Yeah, it'd be kind of funny and, and goofy. And yeah. wh- what better man than the man who was in Airheads and Sino Man and George of the Jungle <laughs> yeah. of that era? Like, it's like, and he is in his fucking prime in this yeah. movie. He is perfect. Pitch perfect. He knows exactly what film it is. He gives it just the right amount. Yeah. He is suave as can be, kills it. I mean, one of the most impressive moments in the film is at the climax where he is fighting entirely CG mummies, and he is making it so believable that he's hitting things. Right, yeah. Like he, and that he choreographed it. They choreographed that all, and he makes it look real. Yeah, it's like a big kind of circulating single shot where yeah. he's, like, dancing around this uh, altar fighting off mummies. And, yeah, I mean, if, you know, if, if this were a more modern movie, I would have assumed that the mummies he were fighting were, like, at least motion capture. But it's like, no, he was fighting against nothing, and it looks perfect. Yeah, it's not even just, like, he's standing on a a pedestal going, ah, and he's just moving his sword, like, in Jason the Argonauts. He's running around the room, hitting, kicking, and dodging. spinning. There's one shot where I think, like, one part where he's, like, he's sword fighting, then he just turns around and just bar punches it, like, just cold cocks a mummy in the face. And it feels so realistic. It's so good. Yeah, uh, Sylvester. I think both. I think Alan Sylvester did both scores in the first two films. Yeah, and which I, you can tell the scores are beautifully just, you know, a wonderful orchestra. It feels extremely huge. Like yeah. this is an adventure of the lifetime. <laughs> yeah, there's <laughs> those a, types of films. It's so of, good. There's a ton of that kind of Energy. old serial adventure. You know, it's yeah. very Indiana Jones. It's very you From, know. 
romancing the stone romancing you, you the get stone. that romance yeah. element to it that feels really nice classic um, adventure films in general like it just yeah and it's it's interesting kind of how many you i mean it, it wears its influences on its sleeve and it builds off of them mm-hmm. um it's also funny because like any you know big video game fans out there who you know if you've played the uncharted games it's like yeah uh, Nathan Drake is like <laughs> ripped straight off of Rick O'Connell. If if they ever said they never had any inspiration from the Mummy films, I would never believe Naughty yeah. Dog. It I, just... Yeah, I was kind of trying to look into that and see because I just while watching these movies, I was like, man, he's giving me so much Nathan Drake yeah, vibes. I, I think um, younger, younger, younger gamers, I guess is the best way, but would we'll probably watch play Uncharted and be like, gosh. Where is the where is the in between between Indiana Jones and Nathan Drake and it's in the Mummy it's yeah, Rick it's O'Connell for sure. full on like it's just yeah. the motherfucker in I will get to Mummy Returns in the full but there is a part in the Mummy Returns where he grabs a knife in midair <laughs> yeah. and throws it back at a dude with no just hesitation it's silly it's but it's perfect phenomenal like, that's the kind of guy you want in a film like this yeah and. It just like cut and dry, just like all the characters are a blast. There's great comedic moments in the action as well mm-hmm. as outside the action. One of my favorite moments in the first film is uh, Rick is reloading his gun, and you see gunshot like bullet Gunshot's holes coming come through the wall, closer yeah. and closer to him. And then Rachel is it Weiss or Weiss? Weiss or Rachel, Vice, I think. Actually. Vice. Oh, so like she pulls him out of the way, who plays Evelyn. And it's great. It's a great moment. Yeah, it's and like you can just see the bullets coming closer to his head, and she's paying attention, and he's not, and she just kind of yanks him and pulls mm-hmm. his head out of the way. He just looks perfect. at her and goes, oh, thanks, and yeah. then just goes back to it. I mean, again, like, Rachel and Brendan's chemistry is off the charts. It's even more in Mummy Returns, where yeah. it's like they, in the first film, there's, yeah, the, the the whole thing about Brennan Fraser is in the French Foreign Legion and gets captured <laughs> Right. And then is in prison for, I think, uh, three years, I think it says. Yeah, because the opening card. is like 1922 or something. Yeah, it's and like then, 22, 23, and, and then, then I think it moves it's to three 25. Years later. Yeah. yeah, and then like when he thinks he's going to die, he kisses Evelyn, and Evelyn just looks way too into it. <laughs> and Brett is like, ah, it is what it is. And like, you get the whole meat cute of like, well, you're a scoundrel. Yeah, yeah. And it's all, and, and we also got to bring up of the fact that like there's a scene in The Mummy. Where Brennan Fraser gets hung, yeah. And apparently, he, gets, he, he nearly gets, died. He gets <laughs> hanged, and his actually, yeah, he stopped breathing, and they had to like resuscitate yeah. him. Rachel Weiss says, "Yeah, they just like stop breathing." <laughs> I guess they didn't yeah. expect that. Well, and that's probably <laughs> that's the first, insane. maybe not the first, because he did George of the Jungle already. But you know, one of the early instances of many that would kind of lead to. Uh, Sadly enough, a lot of Brendan Fraser's difficulty later in his career because his just enthusiasm for doing the stunt, getting it done, selling it. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, on these movies, I think it's mostly the next one, but clearly on this one, he <laughs> almost died. But on the next one, I'm pretty sure he like broke his spine, broke a rib. Would not surprise uh, me. Injured himself several times and that kind of continued to be a trend in, in his later movies and was eventually why he kind of 
stop yeah. being able to do blockbusters. Yeah, because after it's it's after I think Tomb of the Dragon Emperor. Any film he did after that was mainly probably a comedy or maybe a drama. Yeah, he started doing a lot more dramas because at the in time, the 2000s. yeah, he needed to have back surgery and he needed to have multiple back surgeries yeah. that ultimately led him to kind of be incapacitated in terms of being able to do films, and then was going through a divorce. Yeah, he was going through and, a lot of stuff. Yeah, and but that's that's past. That's uh, yeah, way past, past that. Yeah, as as of right now, this is the film that makes Brendan Fraser a full blown star. If he wasn't already a star, going yeah. through like you know stoner comedies and then going into you know a, a Disney live action cult classic, this was the film where it's like, oh, we just want Rick O'Connells everywhere. We just yeah. want more Rick O'Connells and. You can't really do it the same way that he does it. Like it's it's fun how much he takes it seriously, but also how much he gives goofball energy to Rick. Like, yeah, well, he's such a just a humble and and goofy guy, and he really kind of sells that himbo energy oh, in Rick because Rick is like clearly he competent. Is dripping he's in himbo he's energy. like Han Solo competent as a gunslinger and adventurer yeah. and on the fly problem solver, but like. In the, the first movie, he has little to no interest in, like, the history of it or the whatever. No. And he kind of just picks that up over the course of the movies from Evelyn. Yeah. Because, um, yeah who's the, a historian. Yeah, because you do the classic mix-up of, like, the, the bookworm with the adventurer. Like, uh, the bounty hunter with the princess. The right, whole yeah. Where it's like, so there's somebody's very prim and proper love interest. And then the main character's swashbuckling. He's a right. scoundrel. Yeah. And it's... And it, it's all, everything in this film has been done plenty of times before, decades before. Yeah. But it feels so fresh because everyone's putting their all into it. Yeah, there's... And there's just so many great elements to it that it's so yeah. much fun. I think like the the heart and the infectious enthusiasm of all the, oh, the yeah. cast and crew is really... I mean, at least for me, what kind of elevates this to a really fun experience because, like... If I'm just looking at this on like a technical level, I'm probably not as high on it as you are. This okay. is like a strong six, soft seven for me. Okay. But okay. it's a blast. And you can, you know, it's, I can see how it, it's endlessly rewatchable. I watched this mm-hmm. over and over as a kid, and I actually had not watched it mm-hmm. since like probably elementary school until I watched it for this episode. Yeah. I was like, man, I forgot so much of this movie. Well, that's because that's because Mummy Returns was the one I watched a lot because I, I, that I was the one I had, them, yeah. I had seen that one in theaters. I never saw the first one in theaters, but I did see the Mummy Returns in theaters. I don't I remember it vividly because I remember, you know, that was one of the first times I was introduced to The Rock. You know, you got the infamous ending with Mummy Returns, which we will yeah. get to. But the thing that I would I look so highly at the Mummy is because anytime I have a moment where it's like, oh, that really hasn't aged well or oh. Maybe that could be a tweaked more. Immediately after, there's a moment where it's like, oh, I just fucking love this. Mm. Like, a good example of that is early on when Emotep gets resurrected. He steals the tongue and the eyes of, like, an American explorer that is... he's has no tie to Rick and Evelyn and whatnot, but he's trying to get the treasure as much as they are. And there's a moment where you see Emotep in the shadows for the first time, and it's like, great design, but it's clearly dated, and he, like, growls at Evelyn and Rick. <laughs> and then the next thing that happens is Rick just yells back. Right. And yeah. it's like, oh, yeah, I love a... this movie. Like, that's that's kind of, like, how it is watching the movie for me was, like, any time I feel like I would be like, this is a flaw, something that I love ten times more yeah, would show sure. up in the film. And, I mean, like, one of my favorite moments in this film, I completely 
do not remember this happening, and I cackled when this happened in the film. There is a character in The Mummy named Benny who abandoned Brennan Fraser in the French Foreign Legion, which led him to get captured, and Rick doesn't like Benny. Yeah. He actually gets beaten up every time Rick sees him, <laughs> throws him off the boat, basically gets slapped around. But my favorite moment with Benny is they're looking for a specific key to get like the Book of the Dead open. They run into an office. They see Benny. Benny tries to escape, and Rick, Brendan Fraser, just throws a chair at him <laughs> and just gets bodied by a chair. And the scre- like Benny's scream is high-pitched. Yeah. And I don't remember that at all. <laughs> just, like, watching Brendan Fraser just, like, full palm a chair and throw it at right. somebody was... Oh, God, it's so good. It's so silly and fun. Yeah. You can't really get... They don't make it like this anymore. And that's not saying, like, films aren't good anymore. No. That's not true. But, man, this like, does To feel... take something this kind of big scale and scope and, you know, this yeah. kind of high-flying adventure and keep it consistently goofy and silly and just kind yeah. of lighthearted and fun, but also never losing sight of the fact that it's about the adventure, not about the comedy necessarily. Like you it's... know, not becoming a parody you just don't get that kind of balance really yeah. a lot it's, anymore. It's such a good job execution-wise all across the board that when they remake the film again in 2017, 2018 with Tom Cruise, they're afraid to do like the same vibe. Yeah, they try they to they try to darker and... yeah they try to make a cinematic universe after the more horror elements, but they can't do horror because it's PG thirteen. Yeah. So it becomes flat. Yeah. Well, well as with this, I mean, the horror elements in his are genuinely like as creepy. a kid. Yeah. yeah. I I actually, like, you jogged my memory when you said you watched Mummy Returns a lot more. I think I actually watched that one more because it scared me less. Uh, the first one sense. has some some body horror, some eye removal, and some yeah, the the some eye removal corpse stuff that's mm-hmm. kind of spooky if you're a kid. I mean, it's you know kind of if you're an adult, but like not actually scary. Well, there's also um, the part where. Uh, Emotep is looking for these jars with like his organs and his essence, so he becomes more fully whole. And the people who have there are like these American gunslingers who are treasure hunters, as well as Rick and Evelyn. And they basically get picked off one by one, and one of them gets just picked off by silhouette. But you just see his body decompose rapidly, yeah, in sand. And you're like, if I, f- yeah, this is this would be rough as a kid seeing that, yeah. Just, like, all the horrible ways these people die. Right, right. But it's it's just astonishing to me, and honestly impressive, just how tight the script is in the characterizations of everybody. Because I think Summers, any single character that has a line and has is more than just a background character, has a lot of heart to them, a lot of character. And surprisingly, for some of them, have more interesting elements to them than you would expect from a film like this. Whereas, like, in the film, later on, they have to basically fly into the City of the Dead. And they do that by basically meeting a Royal Air Force pilot. Yeah, an old who friend wanted, of, yeah, of uh, Rick's. Yeah, who, want, who basically just says outright he wants to die in battle. <laughs> and it's like, it's so weird to see that in a film like this. Yeah. That kind of little bit, just enough depth to make him more interesting than the usual kind of like, I can take you there. Yeah, like, well, because when you meet him, he's kind of like this, he's kind of played for laughs as like mm, this sort of, you know. Fat, lazy old soldier who's just been drinking his life away in the desert because he has yeah. nothing to do. 
And so, yeah, when you get that fold of him being like, oh, yeah, it'd be great to just go down in a blaze of glory. And then, of course, they fly into um, the, the the iconic sand wall with the face. <laughs> right. Then they crash and he gets a little moment where he I mean, he's he dies in the crash and Rick discovers him. And but he's just, smiling. Yeah, he's he's laying there in his cockpit, just smiling as the plane mm-hmm. kind of sinks into the sand. It's a sweet little moment. He got he got the he got the hero's death that he wanted. Yeah. It's also funny, too, that when we're reintroduced to him, we go to the Royal Air Force Base in Egypt, and it's like no one's there, and he's just <laughs> under joke, an umbrella yeah. getting a fan on him. Like, right. he's just waiting for something to do. Yeah. Like, yeah, the mummy is just a blast through and through. I mean, the Jonathan, Evelyn's brother, he's a great, like, you know, kind of weaselly character mm. who I honestly think he's pretty much consistently good throughout all three films. As consistently yeah, good as you can be in Dragon he's Emperor. He's probably but. the one who suffers the least. Yes. Uh, in terms of like how three kind of drops the ball. He's yeah. kind of just the fun foil to Evie and Rick. He's probably the most realistic in terms of like every single time they come across something that might be mummy related. He's just like, nope, I don't want to be a yeah, part I of this. I don't want to do this. And it feel it's interesting because like I feel like that's a trope cause that's been done a ton since. I can't at the top off the top of my head think of a bunch of that of instances of that prior to this yeah. movie so maybe jonathan had maybe. some influence mm-hmm. on following to me he feels like the best way i could describe it to somebody without having like if i had to use another film he's like if uh aladdin's pet monkey abu was a person yeah like he just like he pickpockets anytime he can he's a little scoundrel who every yeah. time he says he has a friend turns out he's probably double cross that friend once or twice yeah he's uh he's like completely he doesn't respect the dead his introduction's great where he's just like laying in a bottle yeah. <laughs> like in a, in a in a tomb yeah he's like <laughs> uh just openly completely in it for the money and the yes. riches and he's just like yeah can we get some gold cool and the mummy returns he's introduced by pretending that uh, rick and evelyn's house is his house trying yeah. so he can get laid right. <laughs> like it's just all the characters are fun. The villains are fun. You really can't go wrong with a film like this if you're looking for something that is action-packed, has enough horror to kind of like make your kids go, well, I'm not going to forget that anytime soon, <laughs> but not to the point where they can't sleep. Mm-hmm. And it makes sense that like this film is made off of an $80 million budget. It makes over total, 400. Yeah, 420 maybe, maybe 415. Yeah. And the rumor has it, a day after the film was released in theaters, Universal called Steven and went, make another one. Right. Like, just do it again. And two years later, 2001's The Mummy Returns comes out. And while I think it's a little looser in terms of continuity, in terms of, like, in terms of just, like, story-wise in general, it's not as tight and as yeah, good as the first one, they, it's a lot of fun. They go the classic sequel route of kind of bigger is better, and you know the yeah. the story is more sprawling. They're not just in in Egypt or the Middle mm-hmm. East. You know, they're also in, in London, in London, and just hopping around globe trotting. And they, they get kind of into that. Okay, well, this is 1933. How how'd they get from this place to this place so quickly? Yes, blah, yeah. blah blah. Well, it's also the fact uh, that it's like. In the in the first film, a big part, which is also kind of an inspiration from the thirty two Karloff film, is Emotep is going on this journey not only to get his body, but to find basically his long lost lover's soul. 
Right. And it basically, in the second film, in Mummy Returns, it is introduced that apparently he didn't have to look as far as he did because there is a resurrect, there is a, a reincarnated. reincarnation of his long-lost lover Yeah, that apparently his followers that he now has did not find at the time. <laughs> right. But now they have, and yeah. that's all that matters. It's, it's left a little murky how the whole, like, yeah, they kind of just drop the word reincarnated out of nowhere, and it's like, oh, I didn't know yeah. we had reincarnation in this universe. And then, you know, just the whole concept of him having these kind of loyal devotees. Yes. And it's like, wait, where did this cult of Emotep come from? It's great. It's great. <laughs> and especially when Emotep, you know, supposedly mm-hmm. died in the last movie. Yeah. Um, and it's also the fact that, like, this time around, the big quote-unquote villain or they're trying to stop is the Scorpion King. Right. Who they kind of just push. I think, isn't he like his whole shtick happened even earlier than Emotep? Yeah, he was even before Emotep because yeah. Emotep knows who he is yes. when he gets resurrected again. <laughs> That's actually movie. one of the funnier parts of the film, too, is Emotep gets resurrected and goes, all right, why am I resurrected? And they go, my lord, it's the year of the Scorpion. And he goes, we're uh, doing this? Yeah. Okay. We'll do it. <laughs> it's like like he's aware of what they're trying to do immediately. Yeah. Which also brings another point to The Mummy Returns, which is probably the funniest thing about this film. Um, the Scorpion King is a character that ends up going and creating a franchise that is longer than The Mummy itself. Yeah. They, it, they got his spinoff, the, the Scorpion King, I guess probably just because of the popularity of Dwayne Johnson at the time. Yeah, like the he was, rise of Dwayne. He was kind was... of peaking in the WWE, mm-hmm. and that's why they, I think that's why he got cast in The Mummy Returns. And yeah. then people were like, oh, I want to see more of you know, The Rock tear shit up in egypt so they give him a scorpion king and then i don't is he only in the first one the he's only in the first one he's only in the first one and then they do like five or six more it's four more four more so what basically happens different actors yeah so the movie returns happens and then the scorpion king i think comes out a few years later yeah with like it's showing the rise of the dwayne the rock johnson as the i think it's matthias is Mm -hmm. the character's name and then all the way up to 2018 there are four more sequels that are like, oh, this one's a prequel where you see the rise of Matthias starring Randy Couture. <laughs> right. Oh, this is a, you know back to modern day, but it's not The Rock. It's another dude. Also has Dave Bautista. Yeah, right. Oh, it's like all this like, oh, I guess this is like the it's just, WWE. It's just the wrestler's of, action franchise. Yeah, I guess that's what it's going to be now. All right. But it's so funny to think that like if you look at the quote unquote mummy universe, yeah. there are technically eight films yeah. and a cartoon series. <laughs> right, right. And a killer Universal Studios ride if you have not fucking yeah. gone on that ride. Yeah. The ride rules. But yeah, The Mummy Returns, The Scorpion King's the main villain. He has the army of Anubis. He has all these Anubis dog, you know, demon dog warriors that if you defeat the Scorpion King, you can basically either control the Anubis warriors or or seal them back. Yeah, put them back in hell. Yeah. And so, you know, they're like, well, we only have seven days to stop him. Let's go do it. Right. And similar to the first mummy film, what's great about these first two mummy films is that in the first 30 minutes, you're basically given everything you need to know. Yeah. Like, it's like, oh, so this is the plot. These are the characters we need to watch. These are the characters that we don't want to win. This is how the action's going to go. Tight, great, love it. I'm strapped in. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of all it is, where it's like this time around, you know, 
Evelyn and Rick have been together because I think it's 1933. Yeah. So they've been together it's for like seven, eight years. Yeah. Yeah, seven to eight years, and they now have a son. They live in London together. You know, they are happily married. They and like constantly, very wealthy from yeah. I assume the treasure oh, hunting. I done. think so. And they also just like any time they get a moment to just like breathe, they're just making out with one another, which is <laughs> yeah. props to them for having a yeah, lovely this marriage. Movie eight is years in. exponentially hornier than its, it's predecessor. It's great. It's wonderful. And, you know, Jonathan's still a rascal, and yeah. he's just looking for treasure all around. And there's a character that was actually in the first film, but doesn't get a name until the second film. Yeah. And that is Odair Fair's Ardoth Bay. Yeah, Odair Fair's Ardeth, yeah. Who is a, which is one of the only other references to Karloff's film, because Ardeth Bay was the disguise name for Emotep. Oh, uh, okay, film. yeah, yeah, yeah. But and, in uh, these movies, he's he's part of kind of an ancient... The co- Medjai. The Medjai, an ancient coalition of warriors kind of... Uh, Trying to keep Emotep tasked, at bay. Yeah, they're tasked with, well, with, with protecting these kind of ancient Egyptian mm-hmm. dangers and presences out of the material world. Yeah, and... Because uh, I, I think they imply that it's not just Emotep. There's, like, other things that they guard over because the Medjai mm-hmm. show up, obviously, in the, the other... Wow. It's almost as if you could use the Medjai in a cinematic universe. Right. And it would have been cool. They didn't do that. No. No. But, yeah, in the first film, basically, Ardoth is, like, showing up where Rick and Evelyn are and going, hey, quit being white assholes and get out of this tomb. And yeah. they don't listen and they raise Emotep and they go, well, you have to stop him. Because you're idiots. Yeah, and so and, by necessity, he helps them yes. and then stop in, it. And then in the movie returns, they're like best friends. Yeah. They're like, hey, what's yeah. up, Arden? <laughs> the, the finale of the first film kind of insinuates a little, you know, just like a mutual respect between Rick and Ardeth as they yeah. kind of part ways and sort of nod to each other and that sort of thing. And then, yeah, the second one, he shows up and they're like, oh, an old friend. Yeah. Except for Rick, where as soon as, like, everything slows down, Rick looks at our death and pulls a gun and is like, what did you bring to my house? Right, yeah. <laughs> and then it's like, my friend, let me explain the plot to you so we can at least get to the yeah, next part. Yeah. And it's funny, too, because our death was supposed to die in the first film. Yeah. But uh, Summers loved Odair so much, they're like, ah, let's keep him. Well, and I guess also um, the Medjai were supposed to be originally like covered head to toe in tattoos, but Stephen Summers thought uh, oh, yeah. Odin Fair was too attractive which, to be covered up with tattoos. To be fair. Which is true. He varies extremely attractive. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> so yeah. it makes sense. He's honestly, he's yeah. low-key best boy. If mm-hmm. it weren't for Brendan Fraser just being so great as Rick. Yeah. Oded brings it as our death. And yeah. He's a lovable kind of support yeah. figure. And so the only way in Mummy Returns that you can kind of wake up the Scorpion King is if you have basically a scorpion key, which is like an armlet. And of course... Yeah, it was his bracelet that protected him as yeah. he wandered through the desert. And in, and in classic fashion, Rick and Evelyn's kid, Alex, just decides, ooh, I'm going to put it on. And then it gets stuck on his arm for yeah. the rest of the film. <laughs> and he, he basically sees the map to the oasis that they have to go to. Yeah. And becomes like a point of contention where it's like he gets kidnapped at some point. They have to rescue him. And yeah. And the the Alex, their son, the kind of child character element, yeah. could certainly be worse. Uh, yeah, he's I fine. Always, he's fine. Yeah. I, I always do get a little tired or kind of hesitant when, you know, in your in your franchise adventure sequel you you have your main characters kind of 
have the kid problem and it's like ah okay there's mm-hmm. a there's an obvious obstacle that they have to get through because the kid's always getting in danger but like he's fine he's also really smart like they imply yeah in the, he does in the film, do a lot which is great too because in the film the armlets in a box he opens up the box he's a dumbass puts the armlet on his arm he can't put it back in the box so he just puts a random statue so it feels right <laughs> yeah. and actually fools the antagonist into thinking that the armlet's in there and then later on, when he does get captured, he leaves clues yeah, to he his starts, parents. He starts building sandcastles in the shape of where mm-hmm. he's headed. Which was another thing where it's like, are you seriously telling me you don't think this child is trying to contact his parents at every <laughs> yeah. time? Which, of course, as soon as you have that question, they find him. Right. And they're like, oh, okay. But yeah, it's like, it's again, it's the mummy. It's the mummy, but bigger. And yeah, more bombastic, you there's know. There's not a ton of. I mean, the the kind of enthusiasm is still there. The style is essentially the same. It's just kind of bigger and more grandiose, and that yeah, comes with some speed bumps. But it's like it's effectively the same kind of experience. Yeah, um, instead of an old uh, Royal Air Force and pilot who wants to die, you get an an old buddy of Rick's who now has a hot air balloon airship yeah which is great that it's the 30s and this man in the middle of the desert has found this wild contraption yeah, not not just a hot air balloon but a like actual naval ship tied to a it's yeah. like a pirate ship with a hot it's air great. balloon it looks top. like a final fantasy like vehicle yeah and i love it yeah and i think it's also great too that like when rick sees it he goes like yeah you're you're right izzy i'm gonna shoot you <laughs> like he's <laughs> like he's like that does not that thing's not gonna move fast yeah which is one of my favorite parts though about the the mummy returns rewatching it which i didn't know is that early on once they get back to their house oh sorry their mansion because they don't have a house they have yeah. a mansion in london rick basically just says outright what the plot is going to be if they continue this adventure and just outright says like i don't want to do this like it's right. like it's like yeah, I, it's fun, you know, having adventures with you. You're gonna probably look ad- sexy in the outfits they put you in, but like I don't, I want to just sit and relax in my mansion and just yeah. you know we can go on another adventure some other time, <laughs> which is funny to think that like he's just outright saying like oh there's always a curse, there's always you know a time limit, there's always an army of an undead. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah it's yeah, so yeah. funny that already in the second film he's like kind of sick of that shit. <laughs> yeah. That's a, it's a good time. Again, like it's it's as a as a double feature, it's a one two punch that is extremely satisfying. Yeah, like, one I mean they bring effectively the whole same team back Yeah. the first one, same director, same writing team, same cast. And that's why it works so well, because it's all the same people kinda doing the same thing. Yeah. Seeing how much more fun they can have with it. And sadly, probably one of the most iconic quote unquote iconic moments of the film is when the Scorpion King gets reintroduced at the very end of the film. Whereas, so you don't even, you don't, you only see the rock in the opening sequence. You never really see him again until the very end where you see a CGI version of him as a scorpion man. Yeah. And it's 2001. It's a lot of work and it's really clear that they did everything they could. And yet it is aged like the finest and worst milk. Yeah. It does not look good. And I think it's the little things. Like, I think people have said, like, it's the smirk he makes. That yeah, makes it even worse. Yeah, weird twist of the mouth. Yeah, and it's not even, the the Rock doesn't even speak. They got, like, someone else to dub. <laughs> well, like, the, yeah, the, he just the has monster. this big, monstrous voice. It's kind of like a Hulk situation. Mm-hmm. 
And but I mean, there's a great moments in that in that fight too, where it's like Rick is just gung ho trying not to die every step, and Emotep does the whole uh, "Nah, I'm one of your servants. Don't hit me." When he's waiting to stab him in the back, yeah, the star scream effect, which is right. which is funny, and yeah, Mummy and Mummy Returns. It just like it ends exactly how the Mummy does. Once the adventure's over, they have a cute little kiss moment. The music <laughs> swells, yeah, and they ride off in their hot balloon, in their hot air balloon warship. <laughs> and we never got a third one. Obviously, we did. We're talking about it now. But uh, what's fascinating about that is, of course, Universal wanted a third one. They, uh, you know, in the in between uh, Mummy Returns and Mummy: The Tomb of the Dragon Emperor, Stephen Summers does, you know, his most classic film. Everyone knows 2004's Van Helsing. Right. <laughs> and that film doesn't do well. And uh, kind of takes a lot out of him. And in all honesty, when he talks about the mummy, he just didn't really know where to go after the mummy returns because the mummy returns was his bigger, more bombastic attempt to make a, you know, a sequel. Yeah. And so he's like, I have no idea where to go with this. And so I think in the mid two thousands, he's approached by two screenwriters about the idea of doing a Chinese mummy yeah. with terracotta soldiers. Right. With like the first Chinese, like the first emperor of China, and doing that idea, and he's like, "Oh, that kind of could work," but ultimately, he decides not to do it, and because of that, a lot of a domino effect almost happens where yeah. Stephen Summers is announced to not be a part of the film. Rachel Weisz doesn't want to come back. I think because of the script mainly. Yeah. Um, Odair Fair doesn't want to come back because the script and because Steven Summers isn't there. And Arnold Voslu, is that how you say it? Arnold Voslu. On Arnold Voslu, who is Emotep, was yeah. going to apparently be like a unexpected ally in the Tomb of the Dragon Emperor to help them fight the Dragon Emperor. <laughs> but since Summers wasn't involved, he doesn't show back up. So when you go into the third film in this trilogy, only two returning actors come back as their characters. Yeah. And that is the actor for Jonathan and for Rick. Mm-hmm. Uh, who was who Jonathan's actor again? I can't uh, remember I the name off the top of my head. John Hanna or something. I who think. is, again, phenomenal in these films. And yeah. in, in The Dragon Emperor. Yeah, John Hanna. Yeah, so John Hanna and Brennan Fraser come back. And when you, go, when you watch The Tomb of the Dragon Emperor, which we'll both tell you, you don't have to. But if you decide <laughs> very to... Very skippable. It is, it is beyond very skippable. It is like, forget about it. Yeah. <laughs> it is so forgettable. Best and not watch it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's wild to think that, like, I think that's how most people kind of thought the film was going to be in terms of, like, how advertising was. Yeah. Because I remember, like, I loved The Mummy Returns. I think The Mummy is really good as a kid, and I, I like, I would want another one. Everyone wants another one. But then, like, you see, like, oh, it's going to have Jet Li. It's going to take place in China. They don't have the same actress for Evelyn. Yeah. And it seemed like a lot of people are just like, I... It's like very clear, sudden changes that are kind of like, oh, And it's also seven years between Mummy Returns and Tomb of the Dragon Emperor, which makes it clear that, like, it's been in development hell, and what we might be getting is been in development hell, also, like, the... You know the mo- the film industry and the movie going audience has changed by that point. I just, you know, I, I mean, realize that's like that's Iron Man year. Yeah, Iron <laughs> Man came out even, that year. Dark Knight came out that year. Oh, Hulk I didn't even came think out about that, that year. Inception now. came out that year. It's just such a different landscape than what <sighs> the Mummy came out in. 
and even when the mummy came out it was almost an anachronism you know it kind of stuck yeah. out as a weird blockbuster yeah um and yeah. it sticks out like a thor sore thumb in 2008 amidst all the superheroes and the weird heady blockbusters and yeah here we it's, are another money mummy movie yeah seven years after the last one and what becomes of the third film and its final product is that nearly immediately in the film how like the other two films the first 30 minutes you get a good sense you're told everything you need to know in the first 30 minutes of the tomb of the dragon emperor you're basically told what while they don't mean to they basically tell you hey the magic's gone yeah like we're just doing this because this has been in development for so long and you asked for this and then you go (laughs) i didn't ask for that right yeah because what basically happens is the tomb of the dragon emperor takes place in the 40s Evelyn and Rick, for some reason, are retired and have an even bigger mansion than the last time. And apparently were espionage. Like, they were agents in World War II. Like, there's a few lines where they kind of say, like, no, we we wanted to get out of the adventures after World War II. And you're like, Okay. Why isn't that the third film? <laughs> right. Yeah. Why isn't them like fighting Nazis from trying to resurrect things? Right. Especially Why? when it's so well documented, Hitler's fascination with ancient Egypt. And, yeah. Like it's like you could you could do World War Two mummy yeah. stuff. That's so fun. Yeah. Beat Captain America: The First Avenger to the punch. Like start doing like weird <laughs> yeah. Nazi science things. Yeah. And weird right. like monsters they have to fight. But no, what we get is a film about. Oh, imagine if, like, Emotep or whoever they resurrect, uh, you know, he, like, takes over a bunch of Nazi soldiers and, like, turns them into mummy Nazi <sighs> army. That'd it, be cool. It, this is the thing is, like, it writes itself yeah. to a degree. Instead, and t- they skip the fun part. And at, at the same time, too, the idea of going to a different culture and doing a mummy from a different culture oh, yeah. is, fan- is, it, is not a bad cool. idea. I think that's cool, yeah. Yeah, and I think there are certain ideas in here where it's like, you know, Alex is now in his 20s, and he is an excavator himself, but he's an excavator for a different, for Chinese mummies. Yeah. And it's clear, it's like, oh, this is a cool idea where it's like, he doesn't want to live in his parents' shadow, so he's not doing anything Egyptian, he's going to a different culture, and he's yeah. he's embracing and kind of, like, enveloping himself in that sense. But, like, Alex is not a great character. No, because he's... No one's he's, really good, great in this film. He's kind like, of 100%... Uh, in terms of like skills and notions, he's a he's a a copy of his dad, but without the kind of goofballness that yeah. makes Rick so charming. He's just kind of explorer it, number two. It's, like it's not necess- I I would say it's an overstatement to say it's like character assassination for the O'Connells, but it feels like the writers didn't really understand what makes them so much fun in the first few films. Yeah, because like. In this film, Evelyn's not an archaeologist anymore or a historian. She's she an now author. writes she now writes like romance adventure novels of the first two films. Yeah. That's where they get their money now, apparently. Right. And then Brendan Fraser is just He's apparently just... a bad dad. Well, yeah, it's like, weird because there's a lot of a lot of things that the movie kind of throws at you kind of way too late. because uh, you know, the movie opens and uh, Rick is clearly retired. He's trying to figure out what to do with his free time. He tries to go fishing, hates it. Just, Gets a hook in his face. Yeah, falls asleep in his chair in their fancy living room. Just lives a very mundane life. And it's almost like, it almost feels like the implication is, oh, Evelyn has taken away his life of adventure from him. 
because Evelyn's like reveling in being an author and all that. But then when it comes time to thrust our heroes back into the, the adventure over in China, it's like they have they have some line where it's like, uh, we had we had an agreement that we wouldn't do adventures anymore. And it's like, what? Why not? Yeah, what well, like, A, why not? B so it was mutual because it really kind of felt lopsided up until that point. Yeah. Um, like in the Mummy and- Returns, they established that their livelihood is still doing what they're doing. They're just not gonna r- make. They're not gonna rise any mummies anymore. Yeah, which makes perfect sense. Yeah, and then in this one, it's just like uh, there's there's a part in the film where there's like two record scratch jokes back to back, and I don't understand why. And it is weird that like Evelyn's kind of like thing is like God. I pomp I promised the publishing house that I'd make a third novel, but we've never gone on a third adventure. Yeah. It's like this is what you're pushing Evelyn's like right. inner like yeah. like this is what you want her to she do. Sort of, it sort of yeah, like you said, a character assassination is an extreme term, but it poor Maria Bello just taking over this character a when it's just actress, a, when it's just a shell through. of the character that it yes. was, and she's kind of just the. She's silly. The mom and the wife and the I'm sort of an adventurer too, guys. Yeah. Whereas in like the previous movie, we established that she's kind of just as much of a badass as Rick. Oh my god! Uh, and yeah, in Mummy Returns, she like Evelyn rules. Yeah, and then and we get to this, and it's like she's the. It's kind of icky. She's the she's weak. Like she's the like domestic the weak one, and it's like yeah. Ugh. And it's like, and it just doesn't help that it's a new face, and she's unrecognizable in behavior and in appearance. Yeah, it feels like a completely different character, yeah, and it feels like, bad for Maria Bello because she's a talented actress. Sure, yeah, she's had she's had great roles across her entire career, even in films that aren't good. She has put a lot of effort into them, and like in this film, it's just like, I feel like it hurts the most when you try to have that chemistry between her and rick it's just not there. it's just not there like yeah. obviously they're two attractive people you know like flirting from time to time but it's nowhere near as galactic as the chemistry between vice yeah. and frazier in the first it, two films it very much almost everything about the the returning characters in this movie just kind of feels like going through the motions like oh yeah we, these are still the same characters guys remember which, that which makes it so frustrating where it's like i didn't ask for this yeah i didn't ask for going through the motions fucking take as long as you want i just want yeah. if and you th- wa- that that carries over to the antagonist too i mean jet jet lee's and it's not a jet a problem with jet lee but his character the emperor uh, he fills the same role as Emotep, effectively, but he's just, you don't really get any motivation from him aside from, oh, he wants to Conquer continue the world. conquering the world, he just, just like he was world, doing yeah. a thousand years ago, or however many years ago, and it's just like, he, he barely has any lines. Um, yeah, that was one thing I was like, I, I thought about this, because it was like, yeah, with um, with uh, Vazlu and Emo, as Emotep, like, he kills it and it's clear at certain moments like they didn't have motion capture he obviously wasn't on set for a decent chunk of the first half of the film right. but like v- like vocally he kills it when he does show up he yeah he's kind of a terminator it. figure because mm-hmm. he shows up and he's this really imposing force that they can't do anything about until yeah. they get to a special place but i couldn't help but feel like in this film with dragon emperor it feels like jet lee was like busy with other things. Right. And they were like, and, Oh, we're doing a China movie. We gotta get famous China actor, you know, something. Yeah, like, oh he was in Hero. Hero is a hit and everyone loves yeah. Hero. Let's bring him back. Everyone loves 
looks up all the Jet Li films that they think they'll sell them right, on. Yeah. He just like he it's shows up in the beginning. It's just a name casting. It's like Jet Li was big, so they cast yeah. Jet Li. Like he's on the poster. Like he like it's obvious they put they put it. Yeah. It's hilarious. The poster looks like it's a rumble between Brendan Fraser and Jet Li. Right. Yeah. And they don't they don't really fight and really do much together for the majority of it compared to Emotep and Rick. Yeah, they kind of barely interact end. until the very end. Whereas yeah. like Emotep and Rick almost have this sort of. Yeah, uh, personal kind of man-to-man rivalry. Kind yeah, of because this goofy masculine thing. Yeah, because in the first film, Emotep kind of has a thing for Evelyn because she reminds him of her long lost, right, right. of his long lost love. And then the second one, every time he sees Rick, he goes, "That's the son of a bitch who killed me. I want to yeah, kill it's a him." Personal like, hatred. It's, yeah, and then and it's there's in, just no connection to this emperor yeah. at all. And then, like, what? Yeah, the thing that gets the Dragon Emperor to fight him at the very end is Rick basically goes, "Why don't you fight me like a man?" Like that's yeah. all that gets him. Right. Because like that was the thing too. Where Which it's is like, also funny because they established that the Emperor like probably shouldn't know English. But no. then, then uh, Rick yelling at him to be a man and face him with honor somehow yeah. kind of turns him around. I guess it was the energy. It yeah. was the energy that Brendan Brendan Fraser was, was giving off. Alpha male energy. Yeah. And it's, I mean, that's the thing too. If you will, Rick as a character in this is just like, it's clear that Frazier is tired. Like, it just feels like at this point he's there because he is, he is a class act. He's a professional. He signed on to do this film. Despite no one else really showing back up, he is going to do this because he likes the character. And what happens, unfortunately, is that you get a version of Rick O'Connell that feels dumber than he has ever been. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, worse father than he's ever been, especially after the Mummy Returns were like a big emotional force for Brennan. For Rick is like, I live my life for my son and my wife. I would do anything for them. I don't yeah. want to lose either of you. And then in this film, he barely knows anything about his son, and he always chastises his, his son. Yeah, even though it he's also doing it right. It also kind of isn't really introduced as a conflict until like halfway or later through the movie of like, I've been a terrible father to you. You know, just forgive me now. Have it's you like, though? Ha- yeah, have you? Your son is doing exactly what you do. You clearly yeah. imprinted on him. And it's clear that like your son, yeah, it's clear that your son doesn't hate you because he's just you. He's yeah. literally wearing the same shirts that you do. And like, yeah, sure. There's definitely some room in the in the character arc to say that there's some resentment there, or maybe you know Rick was yeah. too busy with treasure hunting to really be there all the time. And like, okay, yeah, you can run with that. But like, just this but whole sudden, like. Yeah. like I was a terrible absent father, and yeah. my son hates me. And then we're going to make up by going on an adventure together, which they did in the last movie. Yeah, and it's just like, okay. And also it's weird because it's like there's sometimes there are certain lines that are read in a way where it's like they're talking as if Alex is younger than he is. Because it's obvious the actor yeah. who plays Alex, if he doesn't look like he's in his mid-20s, he, I mean, if he's not in his mid twenties, he looks like he's in his mid twenties. Yeah, he looks like he out. could be almost thirty. Yeah, he looks like he could be as old as kind of what Rick was in, in the, the first, first film. film. Yeah, and like, <laughs> meanwhile, Rick is not aged at all. Oh, Rick is aged like a fine wine. But like, there's a moment, there's several moments in the film where like Evelyn babies him in a weird way, where it's like, do you not know how old he is? Like, because right, yeah. there's one moment where it's like uh, Alex's love interest is Ling. Who is like the, which who is basically like one half of uh, Ardoff Bay with yeah. Link's mother being played by Michelle Yeoh, being like the other half, being like the expository version of that. Right. While as Ling is like the the fighting prowess of Bay, and 
there's a moment where like Evelyn and Alex are talking and Alex basically just says like, you know, I've, I've had my fair share of time with the opposite sex. And then like Evelyn gets like weirdly, like not offended, but going like, Oh my, my boy, my, what, what, what do you mean? <laughs> yeah, right. and it's like, like, he's a full grown adult. He's like. in his mid twenties. Are you kidding me? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I mean, there's even a moment early on in the film with uh, Jonathan where like uh, Alex is trying to basically hit on this woman. And Jonathan says, listen, Let's just say if she's a tomb, there's a lot of adventurers who've gone through her. And then, yeah. like, Alex goes, well, excuse me while I go uh, do an excavation. Like, he obviously yeah. is, like, he's a little bit of a horn dog and obviously right. a ladies' man. And it just feels weird that it's, like, you wrote him to be in his mid-20s. Why treat him as he's not yeah. an adult? Because Maybe, it's kind yeah. of a weird thing, too, where it's, like, yeah, they can get mad at him for, like, dropping out of school. But, one, they should know because they still send letters. <laughs> right. And two, like, he is an adult. As long as he's not dead in a ditch and talking to you, like, maybe kind of figure that out. And they're like, no, they just, like, like Evelyn's a pushover and Rick's apparently the mean dad, even though he's not really mean. Yeah, he's, he's never just... really, he, like, it's just one of those where they keep, the script keeps telling you that all these things are wrong or that Rick was a bad dad or they have a poor relationship, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. But, like, you don't actually see them really act that way toward each other i mean rick never does anything that's like terrible parenting yeah Um, and i guess you could argue that like by this point he's realized how bad of a father he was and he just wants to make up but it's like you would think there would still be some residual like don't you get it dad like yeah and also he's like rick has not been in the first two films emotionally that stunted no we're like in the like in the first film like the reason why he's so weird about talking about his emotions is because he doesn't fully know if Evie's into him. And then mm-hmm. when she is, he's just full-blown, like, all over her. And, like, in Mummy Returns, he's never afraid to say how much he loves his son and how much he loves his wife. And and then the third one, like, spoiler alert for the third one, in case you didn't want to watch it, which is totally fine, he dies for a split second yeah, in the story. He sacrifices yeah, his Comes himself. back to life, and when he's trying to reconcile with the son, it is so rough because he yeah. just, he's just like... I've just I do I've been a terrible father and I was like, what do you quit stuttering? You're Rick <laughs> O'Connell. You can handle this. Yeah. Like it's like why are you doing this? And it's just one of those movies. Like at least the the climax is fun to a degree. Yeah, I mean once like, it gets into kind of the big overblown, you know, mm-hmm. the zombie armies fighting and stuff, it, it's about as fun as as yeah. at least the last one. I I think uh, I personally in terms of like the the enemy army's designs. I think I might like the terracotta soldiers the most. I kind of like yeah. the design of like how they make a move. Right, because they move stiff. like they're made out of terracotta. Yeah, which is great. Yeah. I mean, it's like I mean that that stuff is fun. The, yeah, the, the Anubis and, army in in returns is a little the weakest goofy looking and yeah, kind of weird looking. But and, again, it's stylized enough that like it works. Yeah. And also, everyone in that scene treats it as if it's serious business. Yeah. And, also, yeah. But also logistically, the the army of Anubis, it's kind of, they're like touted as this kind of badass, unstoppable <laughs> army, but like one hit from any weapon turns them to dust. It Whereas was, it's it like, the it mo- was more, yeah, it was like you have to cut off their head and then Ardoth just like is mowing down heads. Yeah, right. He's just going to town on all these. Yeah. And yeah, and then in this, it's like the Dragon Emperor has a terracotta army, and then um, Michelle Yeoh's character resurrects. All the victims of the Dragon Emperor, and they fight against it. So we have this right. big fight. But unfortunately, again, in classic fashion of this film, 
uh, Evelyn and Rick just play like a back seat, and they're just like weirdly just yeah. We kind of cut to them every once in a while, and yeah, they're just... shooting terracotta warriors and mm-hmm. bantering at each other, which is and it's like okay, cool. That's that's like old times, but it's just. Yeah. The focus is not on them. It's also shot wide enough that it, it's funny to think that most of those shots, it's just Brendan Fraser and Maria Bello just running in a field <laughs> or going up a hill and they're just pretending right, they're shooting yeah. at things. And, like, yeah. I mean, this film throws yetis at you, Shangri-La. The yetis like, are low-key the heroes of this this movie. They're, uh, they're, so, they're such good boys. I didn't expect them to be such good boys. They're badass. Yeah, they kind of come out of nowhere, but it's okay. Yeah, Ling... <laughs> She just goes over and starts singing, and then yeah. three giant yetis yeah. come down and just start mowing down. <laughs> yeah, speaking of speaking of uh, the Mummy franchise's influence on Uncharted, I have to wonder if you know this movie dealing so much with Shangri La and the the gem Maybe? and the yetis, if that had any influence on the direction Uncharted Two went. Because Uncharted Two, I think, was like a year or it's two a year after, two after this. this. Yeah. At the same time, I could also be like, I could. I mean, see it's also them, an obvious, you yeah. know, story to tell for yeah. an adventurer. I could absolutely see them being in development around the same time as this, not really thinking about it, and then when right. this film comes out, they go, "You see that? Don't do that. Let's do that better." Better, yeah. and it's like, yeah, they do that better in yeah. Among Thieves, and gosh, the Yetis are terrifying in Among oh, Thieves. Oh, yeah, they're great in that, but it's it just, I mean, my my favorite, I guess, my favorite moment. In my favorite comedy line in Dragon Emperor is Alex talking to Ling. Cause it's it's introduced that Ling is immortal. She's been around for thousands of years, and Alex, unhindered by this, just goes up to her and goes, "You know, I'm not against being with an older woman." And it's like that's a good line. I gotta give yeah. props for props to do. That's a good line. Yeah. But the most accidental, not supposed to be funny, but it's it's uh, it's so good is when. Um, Jet League has his terracotta soldier transformation into a mortal being. He goes into a pool. Oh my god! He turns into a dragon, a well, three-headed first, dragon. But first, before, <laughs> yeah. yeah, you explain it. Okay, well, he, yeah, he, he dives into the pool, and the understanding is that he's going to be kind of his powers will be restored. But he goes under the surface of this glowing water, and what comes out are three. <laughs> CGI Jet Li faces. Just (laughs) normal human faces, but they're computer generated, come popping out of this water, and you're like, what? Why are we seeing three heads? Of course, then they turn into dragons. They turn into dragons, and he's like a Hydra, three headed dragon. I laughed. Ghidorah type thing. So hard. It's hilarious. And it's just like, why why make that choice? Why have him be three CGI Jet Li heads? Why not just do the dragons? If there's any pro I can give to Dragon Emperor, is at least it gets. I think, I mean, you told me this too, and I agree with you. It gets better over time, yeah. but that doesn't make it a good movie. It's still really bad. Right. Well, and it's, it's setups are so bad and the characters are so yeah. poorly established that it's like, even though it's just at a basic level, more entertaining by the latter third, you just don't care because you're not invested because the characters don't feel like they mean anything and the plot is pointless. And, yeah, and they just like, they basically fast travel to everywhere where it's just yeah. like, when Shangri-La is introduced, it's at the very top of like one of the highest mountains. Yeah, and they and just kind of get there. They just get there. Thanks to the Yetis, I guess. I guess they ride the yeah, Yetis. Yeah, I think they do say something about the Yeti. Well, it is shown because Rick gets stabbed, and he's like almost dead, and they, they have to carry him on a stretcher. And yet it's montaged in like two minutes. Yeah, like they climb up this entire <laughs> mountain with, with Rick dying. Oh, my God. 
We also have our, our pilot of the film. Uh, his actor is Liam. I can't remember his last name, but he's Davos from Game of Thrones. Yeah, right. He kills it in this. I mean, he's fun. Yeah. He's uh he's he's got another line where it's like he looks he's he's piloting them he's flying them back. Liam Gallagher? Yeah, no. yeah, yeah, I think it might no, be no, that. No, no, he's a singer. Uh, I mean, <laughs> he's a singer. I feel like something, something or the other, but it's like they they're flying to catch up with Jet Li Dragon, and then when he sees Jet Li Dragon, he just turns to Rick and goes, "Should I stop drinking?" And then Rick just like shakes his head no. <laughs> I was like, That's a cute little line. But yeah, this movie is completely unnecessary. And it's no surprise that while this film did make over four hundred million dollars, the budget to this one was one hundred twenty million. One hundred forty-five. It was one hundred forty-five. Yeah, almost yeah. double the so first one. So it was basically, uh, if it was, it's it's considered a critical failure. And I think in terms of how they felt like it was going to do, it's also a financial failure because they thought they would make probably five hundred at least. Yeah. And they didn't even make that. And that is the end of the Mummy trilogy. Like it's yeah. it, like that's the thing that's so it's crazy very about cut this. And dry, yeah, yeah, because it's like, yes, we do get a remake with Tom Cruise, and yes, that movie is fucking not good. But at the same time, it's like that has no tie to any of these films. Like, this was a nine-year, like this was a near decade yeah. of a great first film, a really good sequel, and then a final film that is just bad. But it came out just late enough that when it didn't do well, people were like, yeah, well, it happens. Right. And then they all moved on. Everything just moved on. We're like, I think Steven Summers, unfortunately, didn't really do anything that hit the same height as The Mummy at all. He does G.I. Joe, The Rise of Cobra in 2009. And then he does Odd Thomas with the late Anton Yelchin, which I remember really liking, but oh, yeah. it's low budget. Yeah. It's got Willem Dafoe in it. Also got Arnold Vosloo, who is fun in that. <laughs> but... Yeah, it's just like a cut and dry trilogy of great, really good, bad. Yeah, it's also <laughs> and it's done. Yeah, kind of not really surprising that Tomb of the Dragon Emperor ends up being such a like kind of machine-made slog with no passion. Because I mean, uh, no offense to director Rob Cohen, he might be a great guy. But oh yeah, like, we, we didn't address it. Like the the director is of the Fast and the Furious. Yeah, fame, the first Fast and Rob Furious Cohen. film, and and. Kind of stealth, yeah, stealth. Triple X, Alex Cross, the <laughs> Hurricane Heist. His his filmography just kind of screams like that. Jennifer, we need a guy to fill a spot in a blockbuster movie. Yeah, and the Jennifer like, Lawrence Ugh. Fatal Attraction knockoff, where she bangs like her son's <laughs> yeah. best friend, the boy next door. Like all these, like yeah. probably like, just, like, like uh, the most like I don't know culturally notable thing. Well, probably Fast and Furious, but even though he had little to do with the rest of it, but like. Dragonheart, I guess, in the 90s. Which you know, that's I, kind of a cult hit. I would love if the reason why he got this is because they had a plan to do a dragon. And they're like, you've done dragons oh before. Oh my gosh, yeah. If that was the case, that'd be hilarious. But I don't think that was. Yeah. But yeah, it just is. It is overall. It was worth this trilogy to rewatch the first two, but I'm never going to watch the third one again. Right. I mean, the best way I always thought, I always knew that that was the case because um, as a personal angle to this, my grandma has very few franchises that she loves. (laughs) She loves the Brendan Fraser Mummy films. She's seen the first two multiple times. I remember when the Tomb of the Dragon Emperor got the DVD release. I think I went over to her house one time and like like my grandpa was doing something. My grandma goes, hey, look at this. And she got like the Tomb of the Dragon Emperor DVD out. And she's like, look. And I was like, is it good? And like with a straight face and a smile, she went, no, but I, I completed the series. So if you want to watch it, and I was like, 
I don't, but thank you, Grandma. Right, yeah. <laughs> like, that's the kind of how I think a lot of people feel about it. Like, I own all three films, but only because the Mummy trilogy was, like, ten bucks, and I at least get two <laughs> films I enjoy out of the three. Right, yeah. Like, if you want a completionist, I get it. That's, that's I think, why most people have the Dragon Emperor, is just <laughs> for completionist reasons. And, man, it was a fun time to see through this again, and it was also like the perfect time to kind of switch into something fun like this because yeah. what we're going to do next is a little bit more niche. I think it's going to be just as fun, but again, going to be a little bit off the rails because it's not a traditional trilogy. <laughs> but um, Andy, do you want to give them more info on that? Oh, do the honors. Honor. Oh, I mean, it is my trilogy, yes. so I guess I did give it the idea. So I don't know if it's been clear enough on here. I am a huge fan of horror director Sam Raimi. I love the Evil Dead films. I love two out of the three Spider-Man <laughs> film he did films he did. However, though, I came up with an idea that in the '90s he had three non-horror films, and we thought it would be fun to do a trilogy of his dramas, which we are going to call. I will give the credit to Andy; he deserves <laughs> this. The dramas of Sam Raimi trilogy, which are 1995's The Quick and the Dead, 1998's A Simple Plan. And 1999's For the Love of the Game, which are a Western drama, a crime drama, and a dry romance drama about yeah. baseball. Right, yeah. <laughs> so we're going to do those three films. Three films vastly different from one another, but all directed by one of the most iconic cult horror directors. <laughs> yeah, it's just an interesting little slice out of his career that you don't hear much about. No. So it'd be fun to dive in because, you know, everybody knows Evil Dead. Yeah. And everybody knows Spider-Man. And not a lot of people know what he was doing in between. Yeah, and you know what? There's even a frequel we have that's tied to his last non-superhero like blockbuster film right before Spider-Man. Yeah. Like, it's it's just an interesting part between 1992 after Army of the Darkness and 2002 with Spider-Man. He has a very interesting career in it's, between there. Yeah, it kind of defies the genres he's known for. Yeah. So, we're going to do that. Yeah. So, tune in on September 18th. Because we always record this live, and it'll be two weeks from now. Mm -hmm. We will be talking about the dramas of Sam Raimi trilogy. But until then, I'm Logan Sowash. And I'm Andy Carr. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye.